Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He is Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Good to be with you for the next 60 minutes as we set the stage for the Giants regular season finale. Sunday at MetLife Stadium, Giants-Cowboys. We'll get to that in a second. But first, a reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the course of the season. It seemed like yesterday we started this season and Sunday... It's actually coming to an end. I know we probably say this every single year. This season just seemed like it fly, and I know that may not necessarily be the truth for Giants fans because of the ups and downs of this year, but it's hard to believe that we're actually putting a cap on the 2018 campaign on Sunday. Well, consider this, Lance. The Giants went down to Dallas in week two of the regular season. A long time ago, it feels like. And here we are week 17, and I think most of us can probably remember that game as if it was just played a couple of weeks ago. So, indeed, a lot has happened over the course of the last four and a half to five months. And quite frankly, you know, I think Dallas is very happy with where they are. I don't, I don't think that a lot of people expected them necessarily to be the division champions, but they are. The Giants, who most people did not think would make the playoffs, are not going to go. But they certainly have done an awful lot to rebuild this organization, not only on the roster, but again, GM and coach in the last offseason. So they're pointed in the right direction, and things are certainly going up. So I think both teams would, would say that, uh, you know, there's some sun shining on them today, even though the Giants are not going to the playoffs. It, it, it's a positive, I think, for both teams as they go into this game. Well, and I think another common trait as you evaluate both of these teams is, and listening to what Jason Garrett told the media yesterday, Paul, and just listening to what Pat Shermer said earlier in the week, both of these teams are in this game to win it. And I know that's basically stating the obvious, but I feel like sometimes, Paul, we have to reinforce that when we get to these meaningless games at the end of the season. Because in fairness, this game means nothing for the Giants from the perspective of playoffs. We know they're mathematically out of it. And Dallas is locked into the fourth seed. So you could easily make the argument, if you're Dallas, mm -hmm. you should have the mindset of we're preparing for whoever we're going to play in the first round. But I think there is something to be said. Just as big picture perspective for the entire league, Paul. And this is mostly through the lens of the Cowboys, at least. And we'll get to the Giants' lens. That there is meaning in playing your starters in the final game of the regular season when you have a playoff game the next week. Because I think momentum is something we've seen, especially in the Giants' case, when we have seen so many wild card teams, Paul. Mm -hmm. They play their best football in the last few weeks of the season, and it's no coincidence it carries over into the postseason and they go on these Cinderella Super Bowl runs. The Steelers did it. The Packers did it. The Broncos did it in one of the two years that they won back-to-back -back Super Bowl. So there is a number of well-documented cases where Dallas's mindset is guys are healthy, they're going out there to play because they know they have a meaningful game in less than a week, perhaps, the following weekend. Lance, I have not done an in-depth study on the topic that you're talking about, but I would say there's probably evidence on both sides of that fence. Some teams who have played their guys and it's turned out well, some teams who have not played their guys and it's turned out well, and vice versa. I don't know that there's a definitive answer as to how a coach should handle the final game after they've clinched. I just don't know that there is one. I know personally, if it were me, I'd probably play my starters for a half. I'm with you. And that's hedging your bet. I get it. You There's know, always risk involved, though. Criticize me. Laugh at me. Uh, you know, shoot all the arrows you want to. I would hedge my bet, and I would play my guys for a half. And certainly anybody who was on the injured list at any level would not get to play. 
And that's exactly what Jason Garrett said. He basically laid out your perspective. I'm with him. I'm with you on that front. The other thing that I think is in play for the Cowboys, not that it should be priority number one, not that it should be the guiding light for Jason Garrett, but Zeke is also in the running to win the rushing title again. And for people who want to say, oh, well, that's unimportant, when it comes to player incentives and contracts and those individual accolades, it does mean something for them. And that brings us to some of the Giants' goals and the outlook for them in this final regular season game. And one thing is Saquon Barkley having an opportunity to, again, Paul, pile up some of these individual accolades. It's been a stellar rookie campaign, but the fact that he is on the brink of a 2,000 scrimmage yard season says an awful lot about the immediate impact he's had for this squad. The only rookies in NFL history to accumulate 2,000 scrimmage yards in a given year, Eric Dickerson and Edgerin James. Two pretty darn good names to keep company with. And here is Saquon Barkley, 114 yards away. Which is extremely doable. It's absolutely doable. I mean, again, yards from scrimmage. So that includes yeah, not, the passing and yards. not just rushing yards we're talking about. Uh, there's no reason why he should not be able to do that. Uh, I would also say this. You know, he's one catch behind Reggie Bush's all-time rookie running backs record of catching 88 balls in one season. Barkley has 87. The rookie record. We the rookie say, record. Right? Yes. I, I thought I mentioned yeah. that, but if I didn't, I'm sorry. So there are two milestones where Barkley can etch his name into the history books uh, with a good performance on Sunday. Now, to his credit, when these milestones were brought to his attention earlier this morning in the locker room, he said, this is a team game. I want to win the game. I look at those milestones as team milestones. Uh, he does understand the names we're talking about, and he, in fact, said that Reggie Bush was a guy he looked at a lot when he was growing up and really enjoyed watching him play, and it would be an honor to, to, to pass him. But Barkley is not into individual records. What he is into is being the absolute best running back he can possibly be to achieve greatness not just through his own merit but being part of a great team. And I think that also speaks volumes about what this kid is about. The other milestone that I think is worth bringing up in relation to Reggie Bush, not only can he pass Reggie Bush, Odell Beckham has the Giants' single-season rookie record for 91 receptions. So, Paul, that's within striking distance, too, because Saquon's at 87. He could easily set a new Giants rookie record, regardless of position, not just running back, anybody. Beckham had 91 in 2014. So that's within striking distance. As Paul mentioned, the rookie running back record in NFL history is in striking distance, and then the 2,000 yards from scrimmage. So those are the individual accolades. Then, from just a team perspective, Pat Shermer has said this, even once the Giants were mathematically eliminated, they are in this situation, which may not be the ideal situation and was not what they scripted, but that doesn't mean that there's not motivation to win, finish out the season strong. And also, I've said this time and time again, and I'm going to rehash it once more, Paul, because I think it's relevant. This is an extremely young roster. Mm -hmm. These players, okay, have not been battle-tested. There's value in them getting the reps. There's value in them getting the experience. And also, for anybody that thinks that these individuals are of the mindset that they can easily check out of a game at halftime because they know there's no tomorrow, they don't have that luxury when you have not played four or five years in the NFL and you don't have a lot of film out there because you're constantly being judged. I totally agree with you. In fact, I was talking to Lorenzo Carter earlier as well. And he said he approaches this as a bowl game. He understands they're not going to the playoffs. This is the NFL. It's a different type of scenario. But he said, as the way I see it, 
It's a bowl game. And because that's the way that in college you end your season unless you're in the national championship game in the playoff. It's just it's a bowl game. And you're going up against a competitive foe, in this particular instance, a team that's going to the playoffs. So you can measure somewhat of your progress uh, by how you perform against a team that says they're going to play a lot of their regulars. At least that's what it appears to be based on what Garrett uh, told the New York media. So that's the way Carter's looking at it. And, you know, I, I think that if you're the Giants and you look at the second half of their season, we understand the fact that, you know, it's still not going to be a sensational record. It's not like they ran the table and went 8-0, which is what Odell Beckham was hoping they would do. And by the way, Beckham was not at practice today during the media portion, which is a, a, a bit of a setback from yesterday. I, I hesitate to use the word setback because we usually we think of that in medical terms. I don't want to say that. But the arrow's pointing in the wrong direction. If he's at practice yesterday, as he was, on the side, working with the trainers, did some work on the bike, and then today he's not to be seen. Usually that's an arrow in the wrong direction. Just so you guys know that, he's still nursing the crowd. From a thing. visual perspective, it's a setback. I Correct. Think a fair way to put it, Paul, because visually it looked like moving in the right direction, perhaps having a chance to suit up today, somewhat of a back step. And I would say in relation to what you're talking about, the injury report pretty much status quo, according to what head coach Pat Shermer said. So that means in addition to Beckham, Mario Edwards, the calf, Red Ellis in the concussion, Alec Ogletree, the concussion, Russell Shepard, the ankle. Those were all of the players on Wednesday that did not take part in practice. We don't have yet the full practice report with respect for Thursday. Now, Red Ellison was running on the side earlier today, which was a good sign because, again, the previous day he was not out there at all. So... These are the kinds of little things that we pick up when we're out there and we get to see during the media portion. And those crumbs give us an indication of up or down, but they're not... Hard to read through that. Yeah, they're not, they're not really true indicators. They're kind of hints more than they are anything else. Uh, but, but back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Um, it seems to me that the Giants' second half is probably more indicative of what this team truly is. I know that there are those who are going to say, well, you have to own up to 1-7, and seven, and the Giants are only a five-win team right now, and they're not making the playoffs. You know, they're in the bottom of the NFC East. Uh, they're going to pick probably in the top 10 of the draft. This is just a terrible season. I understand when fans say that because they always want to be above 500 and they always want to be in the playoffs. But from where the Giants came from, and then what they showed over the second half, especially offensively, you have to be encouraged. I, I mean, I was just talking to, to, to one of the assistant coaches before, and I won't say who it was. I said, hey, you know, you've got about a dozen guys left over from last year's team. There's a good chance you might wind up keeping three dozen of this year's players. Not as much turnover. Going into assume. next year. That's good. That's good. And then when you consider they probably need five or six feature players, which you can definitely and reasonably acquire during the offseason, whether it's free agency or the draft, it's not too much to ask a team to say, we need five or six significant players, guys who are going to see a lot of feature reps. That's not too much to ask. It's when you start asking for 10 or 12 that it becomes a big deal. But to get five or six, you can do in a season. So... I think the Giants really would like to win this game because it, it enhances the belief that they are on the right track. 
Again, they played a good game in Indianapolis the other day. They did lose it to a team that's fighting for the playoffs, to a quarterback who's having a sensational season, an undermanned defense that, that obviously couldn't hold on. I get all of that. But I don't think that was a depressing loss, if that makes any sense it to you. It was a heartbreaking loss, I think. Is a heartbreaking loss, but not a depressing it. loss. No, not at all. The worst loss was the Titans game when they got shut out. That was a terrible game, a horrible performance. That wasn't the case last From week. all facets. So, you know, if they play well against Dallas, and even if they come up short, if they play well, I do think that will somewhat enhance their belief that they're on the right track. Well, they've played a lot of close games this season. Lost three in the final minute. And that Indianapolis Colts game was the latest one when you take into consideration Philadelphia, the road game, and then Carolina on the road. Those are the other three. Each time after Eli Manning had given them a lead and put them in position to win. And then the defense on the field. and It somewhat reminded me, Paul, of the 2015 season. Same thing happened. How many scenarios did the Giants take the lead? In the final seconds. And then all of a sudden the defense is on the field unable to make a stop. Yeah, Carolina that season, that was that Josh Norman, Odell Beckham game. But if you remember, the Giants battled back. They were down by... Mm -hmm. Multiple touchdowns and then the game-winning field goal. Tom Brady and the Patriots put together a drive after Odell Beckham had that play in the end zone to get in for a field goal. In some ways, this Indianapolis game was like the Houston game earlier in the year when Deshaun Watson started to slice up the defense through the air in the second half, brought them back, and then the Giants came up with a turnover to ice the game. Uh, this time, Andrew Luck didn't turn the ball over no. and, and got them into the end zone. Well, they scored three touchdowns on their four possessions in the second half. So it was really a tale of two halves for the Indianapolis Colts, if you want to look at it from that perspective, and a tale of two halves in fairness for the Giants defense. Now, just as a means of comparison, because another season I think that is relevant to this, Paul, is 2016. Because, see, 2016, they played a lot of close games. But 2016, they closed out those games. That was the biggest difference. They have played 11 games... That have been decided by seven points or less this season. They're four and seven in those games. Mm -hmm. They played 11 games in 2016 that were decided by seven points or less, eight and three in those games, including four and one in games decided by three points or less. Now, the one difference that I think is important to note of those 11 games that have been decided by seven points or less this season, four of them technically became one possession games, Paul, because of a late score. So it's not necessarily fair to say it was a very competitive game. Week two at Dallas, the Giants kick a field goal with 11 seconds left. That pulled them within seven. Right. Week three, the Texans, to your point, score a touchdown with one second left to pull within five. Week seven at Atlanta, the Giants scored a touchdown with five seconds left to pull within three. And then week eight against Washington, the Giants scored a touchdown, 17 seconds left to pull within seven. So... I would really remove that. If you want to be truthful, seven games, truthfully, were decided by seven points or less I tell you, you know, you know, the one deceiving game for me is the Atlanta game, which you didn't even address. Well, that was one of the games that I have on my list, which became close late as a result of a Giants touchdown. See, but I, I, I disagree with that one because uh, until they well, wound up hitting like a 55-yard field goal with about two minutes to go, uh, the Giants were within a touchdown, and they, they could have won that game. And then the Falcons kicked this late field goal, which, by the way, they still shouldn't have done. The book says you got to punt that ball to go for fourth down. They picked choice C, 
which was the most illogical choices of all. And, of course, their kicker hits the field goal. And it goal. was the backup kicker because Matt Bryant was hurt. Correct. It was Giorgio Tavecchio. Correct. Former Raider. And and Tavecchio hits the 50-plus the yard field goal to put the Giants down by two scores. And then, of course, you know, Eli uh, got the late touchdown. So, to me, that was a legitimate game that they were in. They were competitive and certainly could have pulled out. Um in any event, well, hey, they, it is what were, it is. They were in that game. I don't disagree with you, Paul. I think the game was much more competitive than perhaps what the last second play showed. But keep in mind, Tevin Coleman had that 30-yard rushing touchdown. That did make it 20-6 to with 7.47 to go in the fourth. So And then Eli brought him right down game. the field. Well, but it took him a good nine plays, 78 yards, three minutes of clock time. So now we're down to four minutes, and yeah. it's still an eight-point game. Under those circumstances. Yes, one, it's one it, possession. No, I get that. But then Atlanta responds with the field goal, so now we're back to an 11-point yeah. deficit. So it was sort of, we respond, you respond. We respond, you respond. It never got to the point where I think the Falcons felt as if they were in a precarious spot. But I, I, your point is well taken in terms of how you can't just look at the final scores this season to say that everything was decided Deceiving on both sides yeah. of the fence is basically what I'm trying to tell you. Very fair point. We just got the injury report, by the way, for today. So the only difference is Sterling Shepard and Spencer Pulley were full participants Thursday's practice. They were limited on Wednesday. So everybody else that did not practice on Wednesday did not practice on Thursday as well. All of those names I mentioned. I'll go over it again. Odell Beckham, Mario Edwards, Red Ellison, Alec Ogletree, Russell Shepard. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the season. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Thanks so much for tuning in to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Let's open up the phone lines. Everything up for discussion. The season as a whole. Looking ahead to the Cowboys game and so forth. Christian is in New York. He gets us going on Thursday's edition of BBKL. What's happening, Christian? Hey, guys. Well, Hi. I'd rather I'd rather win this game this week than... Uh have one spot better in the draft. I really hope we can end on a good note here. Um, and something I've noticed about this year is that Evan Ingram doesn't seem to get involved when, or at least not very much, when Odell is actually playing. And when he's not playing, he they seem to find a way to get him involved quite a bit because he's had uh, 239 yards in these last three games. And that's only like, 20 or 30 yards short of what he had all season before that. Well, I think, first of all, you got to keep in mind, Engram missed a number of games due to injury. So there weren't a whole lot of games where the two of them were actually well, on the field games. simultaneously. So it's yeah, a small... seven games. Uh, that's not a lot. That's not that's not less a than half sample the season. size, Christian. Yeah, I mean, if, if we went 16 games with both of them on the field and then, to your point, Engram's numbers were down throughout the season, I think that's more of perhaps something to unravel, but the fact that there wasn't much of an overlap between those two guys, and even when they were on the field together, remember, there were a first few games that Engram came back, he still wasn't 100% fully healthy. So you have to take that into consideration as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he probably is feeling a little better now. Absolutely. Point. I think that's a big part of why he's executing at a much higher level. It's not just his targets. You could see there's acceleration and speed out of him that we were not seeing earlier in the season because he was not fully healthy. Yeah, and I mean, it'll take more looking back at the tape to decide whether it was, you know, the way they're actually using him. Because it seems like right now he's actually catching a lot of short passes. And, you know, I'm not quite sure if that's 
exactly what they were doing earlier in the season. But I really hope that he becomes the number two moving forward because I feel like after this year, it's it's a little more safe to say that Shepard is more of a solid three instead of a reliable two. Wow. I mean, look, Sterling Shepard, I think we would all agree, is one of the better slot receivers in the NFL, right? I would say so. Okay. So but now. He just seems like a guy you would want to not necessarily rely on when a, a big guy like Odell goes down to really be a star every week. Well, I, I, mean, I, I know he did it this week, but. I, I understand the point, but here's the thing. I think the Giants are looking at it right now that when they go to their. Their, their three-wide set, what they're really saying, and I know that there's Russell Shepard and there's Coleman and there's Latimer and, and Fowler. These other guys are on the roster. But to be perfectly honest, when they go to their spread set, Ingram basically becomes the other top three option because they'll line him up in a stand-up position off the line. So in their minds, on those downs, you know, Ingram's really, he's kind of ahead of Shepard in a way. You know, where, where he and Beckham are probably, you know, more of the the big-time targets, and Shepard becomes, again, the slot guy. So, I don't know. I guess what you're saying is you don't, you don't ever want Shepard to be one of the two receivers. You, 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 you don't like it when Ingram is the, is the tight end in a true formation and Shepard is outside with Beckham. Is that basically what you're saying? That's the, the situation you want to avoid? I guess from a talent and upside uh, perspective, I wouldn't I wouldn't want Shepard to be my second best wide receiver on my team, just because he's like his his upside is kind of limited on the field. I mean he's he's not really that big, but he's also not really that. Well, fast again, either. what I'm trying to say to you though is when they go to their wide package, you know he does he's not he's not required to be the second best receiver on the field. In a way, he's kind of the third because you got you got Ingram and you got Odell. You follow what I'm saying? It's three guys. It's not two. He's not forced to be the second-best target on the field at that moment. Well, yeah, what I'm saying is I hope Ingram, you know, becomes a better option overall. Well, I think— Just just from a— Yeah, he's been hurt a lot this year. I do think that, you know, he he had dropsies last season. We all know that. It's well-documented. But I do think that Ingram, in, in limited time this year, despite the injuries, I think did show he could be more of a big play threat. Yeah, I think we've seen that in the last few games. And Christian, appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for weighing in. It's basically similar to last season when there was only so much you could take away, Paul, because of all the injuries on the field. I feel as if Evan Ingram's 2018 campaign, it doesn't mean that there's nothing you could take away from this season, but there's not a whole lot of substance because he wasn't fully healthy for the majority of the year, and he missed a number of games. So I think you see what you saw at the last few games and wonder whether or not he could build off of that, and when Odell Beckham and him are on the field together, can he continue this production? But you present fully healthy Beckham, Shepard, Evan Ingram, and Saquon Barkley. I think most teams would sign up and be okay, even if one or two guys is in and out of the lineup, that that's still a sufficient group to be productive. And there's only one football. Yeah. See, I mean, you can only throw to so many guys each and every time. I would only agree with the caller in one one tiny aspect, and that is if if Ingram goes down or if Beckham goes down, I don't even want to talk about Barkley, but if one of the outside threats goes down, now who becomes the next receiver on the depth chart who's got to get extra playing time? And quite frankly, I don't think that Coleman, Fowler, 
Russell Shepard or or um, or uh, Henderson or you know any of these guys, uh, Joel Davis. I don't know that any of these guys, uh, Corey Latimer, proved this season that they are capable of stepping up into that spot without much drop off. I'm not going to disagree with you. I don't think, though, in fairness, the Corey Coleman's of the world. Well, Cody Latimer was on IR. So, once again, we're also talking about a very small sample size with him. Absolutely true. Coleman Paul is intriguing to me. Number one, part of it is because of his resume. We're talking about a former first-round pick. So, I I think they could continue to try to tap into that. But I'll try to bring up his numbers. In fairness, Paul, and, and this is something that you have to take into consideration. Okay, so you remove Odell Beckham from the equation. Corey Coleman then comes in. Is Corey Coleman receiving as many targets as Odell to even enter the conversation? Is he capable of actually truly filling in for him? I guess what I'm saying is, don't you need the volume to be equivalent to determine truly whether or not a player can consistently make plays to the level of the other guy? I think the problem is, if somebody goes down, you need to know that the backup's going to come in like a Dominic Hickson and give you a sufficient level of production that you don't look at that spot as a possible detriment, that the fall-off isn't significant. You want it to be enough where you could still do most of what you want to do. To me, Dominic Hickson was really, really good at stepping into any of the receiver spots when somebody got injured, and he could allow you to function without much uh, difficulty. That's what made him so good. He was such a pro's pro. And he was versatile, too. And quite frankly, to some degree, Dwayne Harris did the same thing for a year or two. No, that's another good example. Correct. Because he was on the team the year that you had some injuries, too. And he had to actually take on a bigger role at wide receiver than they probably anticipated. And none of these guys this year showed that to me. Well, here's my issue with Coleman. I'm looking at Coleman's numbers. Coleman has been targeted eight times mm-hmm. this season. That is a very small number, Paul. And he caught five of his eight targets. Can you really tell? Now, would the counter-argument be, well, if he's not getting targeted a lot, that means that he's not getting open a lot. I don't know if that's a fair synopsis based on this small sample size, but I personally would want to see... Coleman's got to get, to me, like four to five targets a game, and let's see what he could do with those four to five targets, Paul, before we can say there's absolutely no potential there. For him to be a reliable well, I think film. part of the problem is this coaching staff believes you have to earn their snaps. And and he didn't you don't get a lot of targets if you don't get a lot of snaps. And if you don't get a lot of snaps, that probably means you didn't earn them. Well, and he also joined the team late too you know? and was still adjusting the system. I, I don't I think that's a fair point. I just want to bring up because I thought Dwayne Harris is a is a great parallel that you brought up. I'm bringing up Dwayne Harris's numbers. From the and, year. and by the way, I have one drop for Coleman on my unofficial chart, and from that was against Philadelphia. Targets. From the eight targets. Okay. I have one drop against Philly. So five catches, one drop. That's what the breakdown is. Now, Dwayne Harris had his, I would say, yeah, it's fair. It's a breakout season in 2015. Now, that year, Harris had 36 receptions. He played 15 games. He was targeted 57 times. So that's my point. 57 targets for Dwayne Harris that year, 8 for Corey Coleman. Now, Corey Coleman didn't play as many games, but Corey Coleman is going down, is playing in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 games. So he played in half the amount of games of Dwayne Harris and didn't get anywhere near half the amount of targets. So, once again, 
the volume needs to be there in my mind before we jump to the conclusion that the potential is gone and there's no chance that any of these guys become reliable fill-in options. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Corey Coleman has played on 116 offensive snaps, which is 12% of the Giants' offense this year. Remember, he joined the team in midseason. A fouler... Played 309 snaps or 32%. Latimer, 183 snaps or 19%. By the way, same exact number as Russell Shepard, 183 snaps, 19%. So Fowler, by far, played more snaps than any of these other reserve wide receivers in terms of being involved in the offense. And, okay, I mean, maybe that's the guy that you want to point to where I don't necessarily think the level of production uh, merited, uh, merits a lot of confidence going into next season. All right, so Fowler, you said, played more snaps than anybody else. That we 32%. Okay, so Fowler, just as a means of comparison to Corey Coleman, Fowler was targeted 23 times in nine games. Okay, that was his breakdown. Well, so that's- 309 snaps. Go by snaps. Don't go by games. 23 targets and 309 snaps. Whereas Corey Coleman is, what, eight targets and how many snaps? Eight targets and 116 and Fowler turned that into 13 receptions for 130, 178 yards. Whereas Corey Coleman had 5 for 71. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. Corey Coleman has quite a toolbox. Okay, he's got, he's got an impressive and skill set. And on special set. teams too, by the and way. And on special teams, he was terrific in the kickoff return game. I'm just saying I, I would like to have seen more from him at wide receiver. Whether or not it was earned, that's not something you and I can answer. But I'd certainly like to see more. Well, he would be a guy, and we're really getting ahead of ourselves here, but he would be somebody in the spring and in training camp, assuming that he's still with the team, that you would want to keep close tabs on. Yes. Because if you're Corey Coleman, you realize, listen, the Giants took a chance on me. I hung around with the Giants much more so than I did Paul in all of those other previous stops since he parted ways with Cleveland. I carved out a nice role for myself on special teams. If I'm Corey Coleman and I had a conversation with him on the side, I'd actually bring up Dwayne Harris as the guy that he should try to emulate. Because Dwayne Harris was somebody that was brought in, carved out a role special teams, and then wound up capitalizing Big as difference. a wide receiver. Big difference. Guys like Harris and Hickson were also punt returners. He is only a kickoff returner. He's not returning punts here. Well, he's not playing on all four teams. I okay. get that. And yes, and on coverage units. Yeah. He's not giving you anything on coverage units. Hickson and Harris were in on special teams coverage, and they were a big part of it. So it's not the same. Well, but I guess my parallel is your point of emphasis on the team is special teams to start. And then there's an area to expand into, which is becoming more of a consistent wide receiver. I think that's a fair parallel to where Hickson and Harris started, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then they didn't come in day one, no. Paul, and no, all they all of a sudden make a name for themselves as a wide receiver. It took some time. And also they took advantage of the opportunities as a result of injury. Interesting that Henderson, to me, was their best punt returner of the season. Coleman was their best kickoff returner of the season. And neither one of those guys gave you production in any other facet of the game. They were one-trick ponies in that regard. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to them, but that's where they produced for this team in that one specific area. I find it hard to believe that next year on the 53, they will keep two such players that just have one area of contribution. That's, That's hard for me to believe. Well, because you need them to contribute. You can only dress so many guys. I get that. 
That's why, Dwayne Harris, you didn't feel like you were sacrificing multiple roster spots, Paul, because he played on all four special teams. Dwayne Harris was a, was a three, what they termed a three-way player because he was on coverage units, he did both of the return units, and he did wide receiver. They considered him a three-way player, well, that's, like Hickson. That's what you call monopolizing the roster. Because you're basically, you're maximizing the roster, excuse yes. me. That's what I was looking for. I used the wrong M term in terms of capitalizing off of what I player. understood. You understood, but it took me a minute to get we there. We got calls maximizing. to get to. Yes, we do indeed. No, but it is an interesting conversation to look at the wide receivers and what may become of that group into next season. 201-939-4513. Scott is in New Mexico. Scott, welcome to the Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you have for us? Good afternoon, guys. Uh, first, I wanted to wish you both a very happy New Year's. Same to you, Scott. You too. Appreciate that. Uh, I had two questions. First one being, uh, good corporate directors before the end of their fiscal year usually have evaluated personnel, etc., long before the end of the year. So if I make it analogous to the Giants in this last game, how much credence can you put into the evaluation process uh, of analyzing players that might be on the roster? Because shouldn't most of that had already been done in the weeks prior? So I wanted to know from your, either of your opinion what the significance is in, in regards to evaluation of the personnel in the last game, because I would have assumed that they've pretty much made up their minds on who will be retained on the roster uh, for the upcoming year. Scott, I think it works heavily in one direction and not so heavily in the other. And by that, I mean this. A guy who has a terrific game in the final game of the regular season may not necessarily give his portfolio uh, an extra five stars. Okay, There may not be a lot to be gained, but maybe that little extra bit that says, okay, we give him the benefit of the doubt for some of the things that he was able to do, and maybe it pushes him over the edge one way or another. But I truly believe in Game 17, you see a guy that goes out there and quits, that's a major black mark. That is like a scarlet letter on his forehead. That is a big, big deal. That works against him many times over. You never, ever want to see a guy quit in Week 17 because that will be held against him in the offseason big time. Okay. Uh, my, my second question is this. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation with uh, Eli Manning, whether he's not going here. to play or not. Not here. No. <laughs> well, I know, and I'm actually uh, in, your, uh, in your ballpark, Paul. Uh, he's earned it. He's probably going to have this highest completion uh, percentage uh, this year. And I'm going to assume he's going to be the starting quarterback next year. Yes. Uh, is there a scenario, uh, because the pool for quarterbacks in 2019 is going to be larger than it is this year, would it be uh, totally uh, invalid to have actually extend another year for, uh, depending upon how he plays next year, well, of course. Scott, I, I don't mean to cut you off. I, I, sure. I just want to make sure I didn't mishear you. What do you mean when the pool for the quarterbacks is going to be larger than 2018? Are you talking about the draft or free agency? The draft, yes. Yes, I was talking about the draft. Well, uh, I, 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 would, I would disagree. From Alabama's coming out, et cetera, and a no, couple of other Scott, guys. Scott, I, I think no. the class of 2018. He's talking about the following year. Yeah, the following year. Right, Scott? Year. 
Yeah, the so following year. He's talking year. about 2020. Then. He's talking about 20. I got his drift. Okay. I got his drift. Okay. The, the, I, well, I just want the clarification. The quarterback prospect okay. yeah. pool should be larger in 20 than Fine. it is in 19. Correct. That that right. I thought you were saying 19 was better than 18. That's why. No, no. Go ahead, continue. Uh, actually, yeah. I'm taking 20, right, exactly. Because as I said, the quarterback from Alabama is coming out, et cetera, et cetera, in that year. There'll be other quarterbacks as well. So my question was, is would it be uh, advantageous for the Giants to actually extend Eli's contract? Because obviously, it'd be over in 2019. Another year is that a possibility, or will they go more sort of a Baker Mayfield or a Sam Darnold route, where they just start a rookie quarterback? Because they'll be building things towards that 2020 season, assuming that everything goes right for next year. Scott, I, I was I, just curious if they would would entertain that as an idea. I've already suggested that as far back as this past summer, that the Giants, provided Eli is healthy and performs at an adequate level. You could absolutely see a scenario where they extend him uh, past the 2019 season into 2020. Now, that could be a legit year where they really believe that he can play for them in 2020. It could be a scenario where it's simply a salary cap move where I don't want to say it's a dummy year, but it's done for economic salary cap reasons, right. and it's configured as such so that they can work bonus money and shift money around so that it's more a relief move economically in 19 while he may or may not wind up playing in 20. I mean, there are multiple scenarios here. The point is, I, I absolutely agree with you, and I've felt this way for months, that it was possible that they would extend him beyond the 19th season. Again, that right. doesn't necessarily mean that whatever they do with that, he is expected to play that out. That may not be the case. Sometimes they'll give an extension to a player, and in a way, I don't want to use the word fake, but it's a dummy extension because what it really is is a salary cap mechanism to deal with what's left on his current contract. Yeah, it's used to spread out the money. Exactly. To have it all bundled right. up into one year. And I mean, to your parallel about Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold, the Browns had Tyrod Taylor, who they brought in, and the Jets have Josh McCown. So you had two teams that drafted young quarterbacks, but also had veterans. And Tyrod right. Taylor started at the beginning of the season. I know Baker's taking the lead by storm, but Baker didn't come in until Tyrod got hurt about two, three games into the season. So it, it's definitely possible that the Giants could draft a quarterback, let's say, in 2020 have Eli on to serve as a mentor, and then eventually move on starting in 2021. Scott, I'll just end up by saying this. Okay. And you know, since last October, going into this spring's draft, I had said Eli Manning is going to start for this team as long as he's healthy and wants to play in 2018 and in 2019. And anything beyond that is a wait and see. I'm actually going to stay firm with that. I've never stepped away from that once, and I'm not going to step away from it now. Is it possible? Yes, your scenario is possible. But all I know right now is I, I don't think there's there's ever been a doubt in my mind he is starting in 2019 for the New York Giants. Yeah, I okay. would agree with Paul. The only thing that I will add that I could maybe see a curveball being thrown into 2020, if the Giants do pursue a veteran quarterback in free agency this offseason, and they bring in somebody who they feel has the potential to compete for a starting job and also can mentor a young quarterback, then maybe they choose to move on. That's the curveball that I could see perhaps happening. Right. But I'm with Paul. Based on the writing on the wall right now, 
I think it's pretty safe to say that Eli is going to be back as the starting quarterback in 2019. Okay, appreciate it, guys. I'm Happy New Year. You too, Scott. Appreciate the phone call. Let's head back to the lines. We got Mark on the board in Chi-Town. Mark, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Hi. Hey, I was uh, at the game on Sunday, and uh, Lance, uh, contrary to your advice from last week, I did actually get to meet Paul down oh, on the did? field, so we wow. did have a nice conversation. So. He called me at, well, the end of the, at the end of halftime. He came down to the front row, which was awfully nice of you to do. Yeah. It's good to see you. Yeah, wow, thanks wow. a lot, Paul. I, I appreciate the time. Hey, um, since I was at the game, I'd like to you know, sort of give you my impressions uh, of the game. You know, I'm a former season ticket holder, and it's really nice to be at a game because you get a perspective that you don't get on television. And I, and I don't care how big your big screen is, you don't see what you see when you're at the game. <laughs> and, Good point, but, Mark. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, I just want to give credit uh, off the bat to, to the coach, uh, Pat Shermer. I thought their game plan on offense was – perfect considering what they were dealing with with not having obj i mean from the first play out they ran misdirection at that team and the colts defense did not know what was coming they were totally guessing what was going on and you could see it with the counter plays the reverses unfortunately in the second half they got backed up in their own end zone and he couldn't run plays like that they had to go straight ahead but i mean that set them up to getting that lead, that big lead. And I just thought it was a brilliant game plan. Well, it, it worked really well, and then they got bogged down by two instances that really cost them the game, besides the fact that the defense wore out at the end and Andrew Luck took advantage of them for the, for the winning touchdown. They got burned by settling for a field goal on their last trip inside the red zone. They got inside the 10-yard line, mm-hmm. and they could not punch it in. Settling for three there crippled them because it allowed the Colts to mathematically go ahead with a touchdown. So that yeah. was huge. you got to get yeah. the seven there to make it a two-score game. Yeah. They settled for the three. That was just a devastating yeah. drive for them. Right. And then they yeah. compounded that. The next time they got the ball, the Colts pinned them down inside their mm-hmm. own 15, and they got nailed with back-to-back offensive penalties. Yeah, right. that was a killer. Which, which yeah. basically left them helpless because you yeah. knew there was nothing they were going to be able to do to get out of that. The Colts at that point had now tilted the field. And you're saying, oh, man, Andrew Luck needs a touchdown to win this game, and he's going to get the ball near midfield. Right. This is not good for the Giants. Well, because it prevented yeah. them an opportunity from milking more clock. That, that right. was the killer. What do you do? But, but to me, the other thing that jumps out, it, clearly the two defensive penalties on the final Colts drive hurt, but the turning point of the game was Vernon sacks Luck, and Janoris Jenkins is called for a hold, and B.J. Hill recovers the fumble. I mean, right. let's face it, guys, that's Big the play. ball game Big right play. there. The, the Colts were knocking on the door. They continued the drive. Yep. They ultimately scored. The Giants take away not only a score, they take away a possession. Yes, Colts huge. don't even get a field goal there. Huge. That was huge. Right. But that that was a defensive penalty. No, I, well, I wanted. I to, he was addressing you, offense. You were talking about offense, but I, I just I think it was relatable because penalties overall to me oh. was such a significant. And for a Giants team. team that was in the bottom third of the NFL in penalties against in the first half of the season when they were one and seven, skyrocketed. And then as the team got better in the second half, the penalties went up. Huge. I mean, right. we're talking about a huge disparity where it's been one double-digit penalty game after another. We'll let you continue, Mark. I know you want to make a few other points, but just to hammer home Paul's point here. So 
Week 8 was the last game before the bye. So since the bye, week 10, 8 penalties. Week 11, 8 penalties. Week 12, 11. Week 13, 12. Okay, 2 against the Redskins, which was the anomaly. 10 against Tennessee and 6 against the Colts. But it may have not been high. They were all at terrible timing. All 6 of those penalties. All Mm -hmm. came back to bite them. Go ahead, Mark. Just to get back to your points, to me the two key plays were the strip sack that was eliminated and also that blocking in the back call because I, um, when they were down in their own five-yard line, right. I mean, I was right in front of me, and you know, they, I believe they got a first down on that play, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, it was either a first down or it set them up within a yard or two. Hold yeah. on. We got the play, I, mean, I got the play-by-play play right here. I can look it up. critical plays of the game. And, Lance, getting back to your thing, they only had six penalties. It was, they had six penalties. It was only for like 24 yards, but they were so critical. Yep. That it just killed them. All right, second so. and ten from the Giants for Barkley for nine. They called Greco for the illegal block above the right. waist. So it would yeah. have been third and one. Instead, it was yeah. second down and 12 from yeah. the two. Yeah. And uh, that's not good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and one of the other points I wanted to make is that, you know, it seems interesting that early in the year, Eli had to play a perfect game in order to carry the offense. It's sort of flipped around now that Eli has to play a perfect game in order to carry the defense. I mean, unfortunately, he got, because of the defensive problems, he was forced to take that, uh, try to take the team down the field, and that's when he made his one mistake. But, you know, it just seems that Eli doesn't uh, uh, have a break. He's, he's got to carry the team no matter what. And I'll, I'll say one thing. Anyone who thinks Eli doesn't have arm strength, um, man, that play he threw to Shepard, uh, it reminded me of the Tyree throw. When he threw that ball, it was coming right at me. When I looked down at the field, all I saw was green. I mean, when that ball came out, there was nothing out there, and Shepard ran right under it. And contrary to what the prior caller said, I'll take Shepard any day of the week. And if he's not the number two or, or number three receiver, I'll take him for his downfield blocking because he's a great downfield blocker. That's a great blocker. point. Yeah, and he probably doesn't get enough credit. He has made some huge blocks, not just one yeah. game throughout the season. And that, I think, is somewhat of an overlooked facet. You want to look for signs of progress, by the way. How do you put that into numbers statistically? How does that show up in the box score? I think this wide receiver unit overall has improved dramatically. I know there's some new faces, Mark, to your point, but I think across the board these guys have shown a willingness and a desire to block up the field, and I don't think it's coincidental that Tyke Tolbert, the wide receivers coach, is a big reason why they've improved in that category because that's been a big point of emphasis. Oh, I'll give you another reason. Because they know if they throw a block, Saquon Barkley might break a big one. Well, I'm sure that's an incentive, too. No, but in all seriousness, Tyke Tolbert is emphasizing that. Yes, that's specifically true. Specifically in the that's film absolutely true. And, he, and he's commending guys for doing that, much more so than grabbing a 55-yard pass from Eli Manning like Sterling did. Yeah. Guys, uh, just one other point, and I'll get off the line. Um, I don't know who votes for the uh, Pro Bowl. But I it's don't a know how Olivier Vernon makes as a, as a, as a first alternate for the Pro Bowl. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked at his stats. He's played 10 games. He's got four and a half sacks, 15 QB hits. So he's getting to the quarterback one to two times a game, and I don't know. I don't see it. So, anyway, thanks for the time, guys, and a happy new year. Same to you, Mark. You too. Appreciate the phone call. The Olivier Vernon, uh, the production has not been what the Giants would like it to be. Obviously, as we've talked to James Betcher and Pat Shermer, the, um, what, we're terming it a high ankle sprain, but I, I think you know, that's just the generic term for what he had. Really, really hampered him the whole first half of the season. 
and that's been communicated to us. It's unfortunate because I, I do think he tries hard. I do think he has a lot of pride. I do think a couple of years ago when the Giants did go to the playoffs, he was a big reason why. And unfortunately, since that time, and again, the injuries are a factor, he's almost like the, the Giants uh, poster guy for the almost getting there. I mean, how many a lot times of is he almost there? And you you got to finish. Well, I think in fairness, he's similar to Evan Ingram, where the last few games, I think he has gotten in there. Unfortunately, the one time he got there was wiped out via penalty. So it wasn't necessarily his wrongdoing under those circumstances. But I've, I've seen a little bit more out of him late in the season, and I don't think, once again, that's a coincidence. I think it's he's now nearing full health. And when you get these guys back to full health, you can see they're more than capable of making plays. But as far as him as a first alternate for the Pro Bowl, I'll be honest with you, until Mark mentioned it, I didn't even realize Olivier Vernon was a full, yeah, first I, alternate. I'm not necessarily paying much attention to it other than the individuals that make the Pro Bowl. And, you know, a lot of players wind up pulling out of the Pro Bowl because of last-second injuries, mm-hmm. other commitments, teams make the Super Bowl. So when you actually look at the initial Pro Bowl roster every year and then look at the amount of guys that actually play <laughs> in the game, they need to replace so many players, in fairness, yeah. that, yes, there's going to be a lot of guys, Mark, that wind up playing in the game that probably are not the first, the second, or even the third choice. The only eye-opening news from the Giants' perspective that came out of the Pro Bowl for me is that Odell Beckham Jr. was a second alternated wide receiver in the NFC. And I'm sorry, but I just thought that was ridiculous. And remember, that came out a couple of weeks ago before he missed the last two of the three games that he has been held out of. I just thought that that was absurd. But other than that, I mean, nothing else was shocking. I, I, I've been a big Elder Grosses fan since he got to the Giants, so I thought he certainly had a chance. Uh, so I wasn't blown away when he got it. I was blown away for him, but you could certainly look at his stat line and understand why his performance merited consideration. Oh, he's been extremely reliable and a tremendous amount of improvement between the span of one offseason with a new coaching staff, with a new special teams coach. So when you take all that into consideration, and then his one miss wasn't just a horrendous miss. It just came up short. I mean, 50 was, plus. I mean, it was on target. It just didn't have enough oomph in it. As and by I like the way, he, he credited Tom Quinn, who was last year's special teams coach and is now this year's assistant special teams coach, as a guy who was able to help him um, kind of round off the rough edges that he experienced during his rookie season. He said, I, I thought it was great to have him here because we were able to compare where I went wrong last year, and how we could fix it. Self-evaluate. And you can't do that if there's not a holdover guy. So as it turned out, Tom Quinn, who came here kind of on a, on a fluke situation because the coaching staff had changed, uh, he had another year left on his contract, he was not hired by anybody else, and when Tom McGahee came to the Giants and they found out he had health issues and was going to miss some time, they called up Tom Quinn and said, Tom... You're under contract for the year anyway. Do you do you want to work? We'll 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 have you in the building and we'll we'll let you work. And and he said, yeah, you know what? I'd rather earn my pay than to just sit home. Sit home and collect the check. Yeah. And I think it turned out to be very beneficial for everybody. 
Plus, it's now a feather in his hat because now you get the guy to go to the Pro Bowl. So if he's looking for future prospects or he has an opportunity to stay on Pat Shermer's staff, it's almost a win-win for him. But the one thing I will say is not only having a familiar voice with him, I also think it helped then to get the new perspective of Thomas McGahee. So you got the combination of both, which I think also helped accelerate the improvement of Aldrich Rosas. All right, let's head back to the lines. Marco is in Connecticut. Marco, welcome aboard. What do you got for us? Hey, Lance and Paul. How are you? Hi. Hello, Marco. Happy New Year. What's on your mind? Happy New Year, you guys. Um, I, I'm calling you because I wanted to get your opinion on something that I read last night um, pertaining to the draft of last year, but I think it's going to be something that comes up a lot leading into this offseason. And actually, as soon as I think this game is over this Sunday, I think you guys are going to start taking calls on this. Um, I, don't, I, I think last year when the, when the Giants were making their pick leading up to that, uh, I, I think, you know, there was so much discussion. You guys had so many guys on talking about the draft and their opinions and where they think the Giants should go, and you guys shared. And I don't know how maybe tired you got of talking about should they take a quarterback or should they not. Oh, I, we I got tired yes. of that real quickly, believe <laughs> got me. Got tired of that by Especially the end of since I totally dismissed it, so. <laughs> well, okay, well, it's not entirely about that, but I, I just, and you guys know this. That's going to come up again this year. 100%. Maybe, yeah. 100%, 100%. But maybe I think the discussion this year is a little more interesting because you don't have the group like you had last year. Um, so this is what prompted me to call. Because last night I read something. I'm not going to say who the guy was, but it is a credible uh, writer who covers the draft and covers the league. And he's been very, very hard on the Giants. Um, Barkley's been tremendous, but he's been very um, – I say selective about the type of credit he gives Barkley because he he's just so in disagreement that the Giants made of the wrong pick and not taking a quarterback. So for me, it's not so much about is Barkley the right guy or not. I love Barkley. I also think that the quarterbacks have proven to be pretty good so far. Um, but the but the comment that really got me last night was this writer wrote it was a devastating decision that's likely to haunt the Giants for years even decades, and their front office should be one and done. And I got I got pretty aggravated with that comment. Um, but I was like, you know what, I, I want to bring it up. I think I'm going to bring it up to John at some point, too, just to see what he thinks about it. But here's my take on it. For, and then I'd like to hear what you think. I, I don't, And I don't think it's like, hey, front office is saying, hey, we're going to get our quarterback two or three years down the road. I think what Gettleman really wanted to do was, absolutely land the right pick and no doubt about it can't can't mess it up mm -hmm. so we need a we need a player who 100 percent will be productive and like he said he actually said hall of fame barkley mm -hmm. has yeah. fit the bill Bar barkley has fit the bill mm -hmm. but for me i look at other teams like the rams um another team that's not coming to mind right now maybe the jets yeah the jets actually they took jamal adams and then they took darnold the rams Gurley, and then they ended up taking golf I don't know if it was drawn up that way, but that's the way it ended up. And I think the Giants are going to end up being similar to that. But what's your take on that? Uh, because I, I don't think teams necessarily fall apart for decades anymore when they don't take the quarterback that, that people think they should have taken. Like in the, it seemed like that in the 90s, maybe, and the Giants were absolutely in that quarterback hell during that time after since. But and leading up to Kerry Collins. But Kerry Collins was a free agent. Mm -hmm. So I want to get your opinion on it. Do you think franchises 
are still set back for decades if they don't draft the right quarterback. Um, and what? And, what, and if you want to comment on that uh, on that Twitter comment, I'd love to hear what you think. All right, Marco. Well, we'll, we'll let you go on that note and, and appreciate the phone call. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, you got it. All Thanks so much, Wayne. All right, a couple of thoughts. First of all, no, I don't think you get set back for decades because you are right with the kind of movement you have in the NFL via free agency, uh, guys who are given up for, uh, on because of salary cap issues, et cetera, et cetera. You can always get somebody who is capable. I think it's pretty hard unless you are, over the course of time, a very poor evaluator of talent I mean the Browns have drafted how many quarterbacks in the last decade or so and they keep missing and missing and missing and missing well that's to me that's the aberration I think you know even the Jets for a while got a couple of good years out of Mark Sanchez okay I mean it's pretty hard to do what the Browns have done by missing on so many quarterbacks over a given period well, but of time. I, I don't mean to cut you off. I'll let you continue. It's also they missed out on players outside of the quarterback, too. The deficiency of overall talent. You're, the organization did not do a good yeah, job. I mean, you brought up the Jets. Remember, the Jets had a good running game with Thomas Jones, and they had a really good defense. You put that with a young quarterback who may not be electric, you're at least going to put yourself in a position to be competitive. Yeah, so I think I think it's ridiculous for anybody to say that your decade's doomed. If you don't get the next replacement quarterback, that's first. Second thing I want to say, and this is me. I'm not speaking for anybody else on this program. And we all know that John did not want to take a quarterback. Um, I don't think anyone really knows until about four or five years out whether or not truly that was the right decision. We can say right now, this year, after one season is practically in the books, it certainly looked like Barkley was the correct move. Okay, I championed that. I'm not going to sit here and get on my high horse and say it's a lock. Let's wait four or five years before we proclaim that it was the correct move. But here's what I will say. Anybody who rips the Barkley pick saying they should have taken a quarterback, the only defense they have because they don't want to be held accountable is to say that the Giants were wrong and the Giants were foolish. Because every single fan, writer, or media guy that scream from the heavens, they have to take a quarterback. Barkley was the wrong pick. They've got egg on their faces, and they probably will continue to have egg on their faces for the next how many years, decade, or whatever it is. And the only out that they have not to look like complete fools is to say the Giants were wrong. I was right all along. I wouldn't have taken Barkley. I know they took him. He may be a great player, but they still made the wrong decision. You see? That's the only way that they can possibly defend themselves not to be held accountable. And so I'm not surprised at the reaction, okay? And and I'm going to leave it right there because that's my personal viewpoint, not to be shared by anybody else on this panel or in this building, but that's how I feel about the divisiveness and the way that opinions have overcome common sense in today's society. And this is not just about sports or the Giants. This is about everything. Everybody wants to say that they're this, they're that. They want to fight the other side, and then they don't want to be held accountable after they're proven wrong. That's just the way it is. No, I think that's well said. I think it's a microcosm of what goes on in society today. I always say that sports, I think, is relevant to that degree. Just piggybacking off of what you said, first of all, anyone who 
jumps to conclusions one year removed from the draft, I think is somebody that clearly just needs to put out content for their readers, for their mm-hmm. site, whatever. I don't know who the writer is. I'm not losing sleep over it. I don't it. know who it is either. And, and I'm not saying, by the way, that whatever Marco quoted is wrong because that writer is entitled to his or her opinion. See, that, that's important to note in this conversation. We're all entitled to our opinions. Assuming also that it operates under facts, too, which is important. So right now, it's impossible to jump to conclusions about Saquon Barkley. You have to wait four years. it's impossible to jump to conclusions even about the rest of that quarterback To, to be class. concrete. But, but here's the other way to look at it, Paul. I'll take it a step further. Can you operate under the mindset that if the Giants take Sam Darnold or the Giants take any other quarterback— that you simply pluck that quarterback away from how he's performing on one team, you put him on another team with completely different talent and coaching, and you automatically yield the same results. Can't do See, it. See, that's also a hypothetical argument. So even if Barkley, let's say, doesn't turn out to the consistent rate that everybody wanted, you then can't simply jump to the collusion. Well, if the Giants simply took Sam Darnold then they would have had a pro bowler for five years in a row. See, now, because you're talking about the environment, and that goes back to even the rookie class between Rivers, Ben, and Eli. Yeah, if you switched all all of those guys. All three guys landed in the right spot. Ben would not have done what he did unless he was with the Steelers. He was the perfect guy for them. Eli was the perfect guy for the Giants. I'm not sure that Rivers would have had the stats or the career he's had if he was with Pittsburgh or New York because he was a very thin-skinned guy, especially early in his career. You know you know what they do to people who fail in Pittsburgh or in New York? They crucified them. How would Rivers have dealt with that? Well, Rivers also was yelling and screaming at Jake Cutler during that Chargers but Broncos. But you know what I'm so saying. He is a tough— Those three guys what, landed in the right spot. Well, I, I don't disagree with that sentiment, but there's really no way to disprove whatever you're there's selling not, anyway. There's not, but it goes so to your theory point. about environment, yeah. and you can't just pluck guys out and move them around and say in a decision-making process that this would have worked or this wouldn't have worked. No, the environment does have a lot to do with it. It really does. 100%. And that's my larger point. So, you know, even when we're four or five years removed from this draft, the segments, the divisive segments that you're alluding to, Paul, somebody's going to want to declare victory. You know, everybody's always mm-hmm. out for blood. Somebody's going to want to come back to the battlefield and say, okay, owe it to me. Earn it here that you admit that you're wrong. And final point, and I'm yeah. glad you didn't mention the guy's name, because let's face it, if he says that Barkley's a great player— He's going to win Rookie of the Year, and the Giants did the right thing. Nobody's talking or reading about his stuff. But if he screams that the Giants screwed up, yeah, Barkley's a great player, but they still screwed up. Well, now people are going to read it. It draws attention to his fluff, and he gets notoriety, and he gets attention, and that's exactly what everybody wants to do in today's society. They want to, All media guys today want attention for themselves. Instantaneous gratification. There you go. Is the good way to sum up this conversation. I'm glad you didn't mention his name. With that being said, we want to remind you, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the season. Big Blue Kickoff Live up and running again tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern as we continue to set the stage for Giants-Cowboys. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday right here on Giants.com. Have a good one.